0: Today we are continuing with the Gospel of Matthew, chapter six, verses seven through 15. When you pray, don't pour out a flood of empty words as the Gentiles do. They think that by saying many words, they'll be heard. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom so that your will is done on earth as it is done in heaven. Give us the bread we need for today. Forgive us the ways we have wronged you, just as we forgive those who have wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation, but rescue us from the evil one. If you forgive others their sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others, neither will your Father forgive you your sins. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's like the opening to Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, hopefully what I have to say is a little less dramatic uh, than all of that, although you never know. Um, no, actually, the first thing I have to share with you this morning is a kind of nerdy confession. <laughs> uh, one of my favorite parts of being a pastor is teaching confirmation classes. If you joined us in worship a couple weeks ago, chances are Chances are, you saw the end of confirmation, uh, which is when these students confirm their faith, this faith that has been given to them by their parents and by the church. They made a decision to commit to a life of discipleship, a life of following Jesus. Confirmation is always a really impactful, important, powerful moment in the life of the church. It is one of many moments in which young people teach us and lead us. In the way of Jesus. In confirmation classes, we study all the foundational beliefs and uh, the theological commitments of our shared faith. We learn about God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We learn about Trinitarian theology. We read some of the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. We talk about sin and salvation and prayer and sacraments and worship and what it means to be a member of the church. We cover it all. Uh, The reason. It is so nerdy that I love all of that. It's um, the reason it's so nerdy that I love confirmation classes is that very few people do. <laughs> um, it's not something that most young people really look forward to because you have to fit two months of classes into an already very busy schedule, right? And that can be really hard. It's hard for us as pastors to fit that into our schedules too. Uh, and not only that, a lot of people don't appreciate going back to basics, especially if they're a little more experienced in uh, Christian theology and belief. But I love it because without fail, every time that I go back to these basics uh, to teach them to these young people, they become new for me, uh, mostly because of the feedback, the input, the thoughts that these students offer. One of my favorite examples of this from our confirmation classes this spring came on the day that we talked about the Lord's Prayer. In class, we laughed about how hilarious it is that in the Gospel of Luke, the disciples say to Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And he says, okay, when you pray, try something like this. And He gives them the Lord's Prayer. And then we proceeded to say those same exact words for the next 2,000 years. <laughs> I think Jesus was just trying to give us a model, an example, and yet... We just took him quite literally. So we laughed a little bit about that. So, in order to revive the meaning of this very old prayer that we all memorize and then promptly stop meaning when we say it, their assignment was to write the Lord's Prayer in their own words. And this is what they came up with Hey, dude who is up there, which we just have to pause there. They really wanted me to be sure that the hey was lowercase and the dude was capitalized. That was very important. And when I asked, like, dude is kind of like a masculine term. What do you think about that? They were like, no, no, dude is gender neutral. So, hey, dude, who is up there? We like your name. Pull up to the crib, and we will party like they do in heaven. Bring the wings. And forgive us the beef just as we forgive the beef done to us. Don't let us do bad things and protect us from evil. You shelter us, empower us, and you are the dub forever slay. (laughs) I share this with you at the risk of losing my job uh, because (laughs) because it was actually a really powerful moment in the life of our confirmation classes. Because suddenly, we were all deeply engaged with the meaning of this ancient prayer that we so often say without even thinking about it. These past several weeks in worship, we've been digging into what we're calling risky prayers. These are the prayers that you and I can pray as Christian people that have serious consequences if we actually mean what it is that we are praying We are on our third week of the Lord's Prayer, you know, the part that says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, at least in the uh, Bible translation version. But what's so interesting about the confirmation translation, we'll call it, of the Lord's Prayer is that the part they had the most trouble interpreting was this, the part about temptation and evil. And ultimately what they settled on, which was don't let us do bad things and protect us from evil isn't all that far off from what Jesus says. This exercise prompted a conversation in our class about what exactly temptation is. So what we settled on is that temptation simply defined as anything that leads us into sin. That also begs the next question, what is sin? How do we define sin? One of the most helpful definitions I know is that sin is anything that separates us from God and God's will from one another, from creation, and from our truest selves. It's actually a pretty broad definition. It it includes quite a lot of things that we could do or not do that might be sinful. St. Augustine teaches that sin causes what is called incurvatus in se, which is just a Latin phrase that means being curved in on oneself. He says that while we were created to be outwardly oriented toward God and toward one another in the world, over time the more that we give in to sin, the more that we curve in on ourselves, the more that our souls become contorted away from God and away from each other such that we can only think about ourselves. I drew for our confirmands a very crude image of this idea that looked a little bit like this, only it was worse. Um, (laughs) And in response to it, one of our confirmands said, completely seriously, so sin is anything that makes a bad hair day worse. (laughs) Which. I think he was thinking that what I was drawing was hair and not arrows. But, you know, (laughs) it's actually not a horrible definition of sin. (laughs) It's probably one of my favorite things that someone has ever said in a confirmation class before. But, you know, there are several challenges, uh, challenging hurdles, when it comes to speaking about temptation and sin in the community. It's a hard thing to talk about. One of those hurdles, which I think is the most important is that I don't want to. (laughs) I don't want to preach about temptation and sin. I think that is very close to putting me in a category of preachers that I don't want to be in. So I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. And I bet you don't want me to do it either. Because the nature of sin is so often one of concealment, one of hiding, one of shame. It's not something that we talk about um, with one another very often. But here's the thing, all of us face temptation, we really do, every single person, um, in some ways on a daily basis, this is a regular reality for us. And and in fact, one of the most relatable moments that I've found in the Bible comes in Romans chapter 7, when Paul is sort of wrestling with his motivations and his actions very openly, um, and he Sort of talks about sin and temptation and explores this relationship between them. How do they relate to one another and what does that mean for us? So he writes this We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm made of flesh and blood and I'm sold as a slave to sin. I don't know what I'm doing because I don't do what I want to do. Instead, I do the thing that I hate. This is what it looks like to struggle with the desire for sin. Have you ever done something that before you did it, you knew it was wrong already, and then you did it anyway, and then as you're doing it, you're thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, and after you do it, you're looking back, thinking, why did I do that? (laughs) Has that ever happened to anybody? It happens to me. And I think Paul would say, that is sin living in us, and Augustine would say, That is the curving in on ourselves that sin accomplishes within our souls. It feels helpful, maybe, for us to name a few of the most common temptations to sin we face as human beings. This is where our historical tradition as Christians comes in handy. We have a a pretty great list that covers quite a few in the seven deadly sins. You may have heard of them before. They are pride, greed, wrath, envy, lust, gluttony, and sloth. So in the interest of full transparency, I will offer confession to you that my most recent deadly sin was sloth. um, Earlier today. (laughs) Uh, Those of you who know me well know that I am not a morning person at all. And so the temptation for me this morning was to... Uh, be a sloth and hit the snooze button, Um, but I did not because after years of resisting that part of myself, I had the strength uh, to uh, get up and not be slothful and then be here with you. So you're welcome, by the way. (laughs) That is probably the mildest example of temptation and sin that I could have offered, and I'll leave the other examples of temptations to you and to your own thoughts and the things that are tempting to you in your own life. We don't need to name those all aloud right now. But the longer I work at resisting temptation, the longer I try to move on toward perfection, as John Wesley would say, the longer I work at living a life free from sin, the more I am convinced that at the heart of most of the temptations we face, at their core, is actually a dissatisfaction with life that has very little to do with our circumstances and much more to do with the state of our hearts, which is to say that the holiest, most perfect people among us are not just people who happen to have faced very little temptation in their lives. They are not people who happen to have little to no desire for sinning. They are people who have cultivated hearts that are open, hearts that are intentionally oriented outward toward God. They are people who have intentionally lived a life of discipline, a life of resisting temptation, a life of choosing communion, community over the separation of sin. And they do this again and again and again, and again, until it becomes the natural orientation of their hearts. Jesus speaks to this reality about the state of our hearts in the Sermon on the Mount just before he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. He also teaches them what happens inside of our hearts when we are even just tempted to sin, not even to mention what happens when we actually carry out the sin. He says, you have heard that it was said to those who lived long ago, don't commit murder, and all who commit murder will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with their brother or sister will be in danger of judgment. He goes on, it gets worse. (laughs) You have heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you that every man who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery in his heart. What Jesus is not saying is that we can never be angry where we can never lust. Those things can and will happen. But what he is saying is that when we lean into those things in our hearts, we don't have to carry out the murder or the act of adultery. We don't have to go to those extremes because the moment we give that temptation space within us, we have allowed it to corrupt us even just a little bit. We've allowed it to turn us just a little bit further, away from God, away from the life that God wants for us. After his very long confession in Romans chapter 7, Paul writes this. So I find that as a rule, when I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. Temptation for evil will apparently be our constant companion. Which leads us to yet another question. What is the difference between sin and evil? Is there a difference between them? I think there is, and St. Augustine thinks there is. He would actually say that evil isn't a thing, but it is nothing. He writes that evil is the privation of the good. The absence of the goodness of God, that is what constitutes evil. And so if we give in to sin enough, if we give in to temptation enough, we might just allow the nothingness of evil to take root in our hearts. And you and I certainly know the experience of looking out, not just inward, but also out at our world and seeing evil there. We don't have to look far to see the absence of the goodness of God in the world. We don't have to look very far to notice what is evil. But the Apostle Paul would remind us we don't even have to look outside of ourselves to find it. Now, all of this conversation about temptation and sin and evil is hopefully helpful Maybe it's not. You're probably thinking, Amanda, we're not in confirmation class right now, so we don't need all of these definitions. (laughs) But I think it's helpful and clarifying, but it still leaves us with a big overarching question, which is, why is this a risky prayer? Why is it that when we pray this prayer that Jesus is teaching us to pray, that is a risky move? Because it seems like, maybe, it is the kind of prayer that we should be praying, right? As the youth translated for us, don't let us do bad things and protect us from evil. That sounds like an excellent prayer to me. You might even say that sounds like a safe prayer. Where exactly is the risk in that? Of course we want to pray for God to lead us away from temptation and keep us from evil. Well, Whenever I think about temptation and sin and evil, I'm always reminded of the story in the Gospels when Jesus enters the wilderness before he begins his ministry. It says in the Gospel of Luke that he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. It is evil. It is the absence of the goodness of God, the opposite of the will of God that is used to tempt Jesus during this time in his life. If you'll recall, he's tempted to turn a stone into bread so that he wouldn't be hungry anymore. He's tempted to take control of all the kingdoms of the world. He's tempted to test God and test the attention of angels by putting his life in danger. Now, it might feel on the surface like these temptations are challenging to relate to because I don't know about you, But I happen to know that I cannot turn a rock into a loaf of bread. To be fair, I've never tried, but it's never been a temptation for me to do that. Uh, No one is offering me control of all of the nations of the world. That's not a temptation that often happens to me. Maybe it does to you. If so, I'm sorry. I'm never going to put my life in danger to see if an angel will save me. I'm not doing that. So these temptations might, might just work only if you happen to be the son of God. <laughs> but I don't think so. I don't think so. I think if we dig a little deeper, we'll find that these are actually the temptations that you and I cannot resist. In fact, I would argue that we have taken these temptations and we've molded them into idols we actually worship them far more often than we worship Jesus. What Jesus was offered was more than just a loaf of bread. It was comfort. Comfort to not feel hungry or weak or tired or limited. And I would argue that one of the greatest temptations that we as Western Christians face is the temptation of comfort. We will all go very far out of our way to avoid discomfort if we can to the extent that we spend a lot of our time insulating ourselves from it. If you don't believe me, just go into a grocery store or a mattress store or a shoe store or really any store because we have built a whole economy on an idolatry of comfort There is a product out there that you can buy to address really any kind of discomfort that you might possibly experience as a human being. And if you try one version of it and don't like it, there's at least three others that you can try that might work better for you, right? But before we get caught up in criticizing our culture uh, and putting ourselves uh, separate from that, I think it's important to name that we are also equally guilty of idolatry of comfort in the church as well. So often, the way that we uh, come into community together is by looking, by searching, by church shopping, you might say, for the community that we will be the most comfortable being a part of. And before you go feeling too judged about that, know that pastors and church leaders are equally as guilty of that. We spend so much of our time wondering, planning, trying to figure out how to make folks comfortable so that they will be a part of this community. We have allowed the idol of comfort to infiltrate the life of the big C church, and it shows. And Yet, we claim to follow a savior who tells us things like foxes have dens and the birds in the sky have nests, but the human one has no place to lay his head. I'd be willing to bet That comfort is not on Jesus' list of core values. Just as we idolize comfort and constantly give in to the temptation to turn our stones into bread, we do the same when it comes to the temptation for power and control. Far too often, whenever someone offers us either one, our immediate response is yes. Yes. Yes to the promotion, yes to the new position, yes to the raise, yes to the important meeting. Any opportunity that we have to increase power, to increase control is an instant yes for us. The more power we amass, the more control we can exert, the more we can accomplish our own will. And yet, we claim to follow a savior who models for us, who prays, not my will. But your will must be done, O oh God. Jesus is constantly giving up power and control for the sake of accomplishing God's will. And even as we say yes to all of these temptations for power and control, we also give in to the temptation for safety. Safety. Think about how much time and energy and money we spend making sure our families are safe or making sure our future is safe, almost like in perpetuity, right? We spend our whole lives saving for retirement. We're we're so concerned about being safe, about being cared for. In fact, we invest so much in the concept of safety that we often miss out on the gifts that vulnerability has to offer to us. My friend Brianna is a racial equity consultant and she often works with businesses and churches and organizations to help them adopt practices of true racial equity as opposed to uh, practices that are trying to generate diversity just for diversity's sake. It's really important work that she does in communities. And every time she works with a new group, she starts by introducing them to the concept of brave space in direct contrast with the safe space that we so often seek out in the world. You can understand why bravery is an important value in the work of racial equity, right? Now, I don't wanna diminish the value of safe space. We actually all need safe spaces in our lives. Places where we can heal and rest and just be, those places are important. But if everything if everywhere we inhabit is safe space, we will never grow, we will never be challenged, we will never change. You might even say that we'll just begin to curve in on ourselves. We claim to follow this Savior who promises us in this world you will have trouble. There is no promise of safety in the good news of Jesus. In fact, to follow Jesus is to enter a world of brave space. And this is why it is incredibly risky to pray the Lord's Prayer. It is incredibly risky to pray these words that Jesus hands to us as his disciples. It's risky because we, as suburban Americans, have turned into idols these temptations of comfort and control and safety. Our lives are fundamentally intertwined with the dogged pursuit of all three of these things, if we stop to really think about it. The idolatry of these temptations can lead us into all kinds of sin and evil. In fact, we saw this on display this week, that these kinds of idolatries can create a world where a suffering man can be choked to death while others look on, watch it happen, afraid of discomfort, striving for security, searching out safety regardless of the consequences That is sin, that is evil. And when we are bold to pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, we are asking God to remove those temptations from our lives. Take away our desire to be comfortable, O God. Remove our impulses to grab power and control, Lord. We are asking God to dismantle our ultimate pursuit of safety, our own safety above everyone else's. That is our prayer when we say these words. And this is perhaps where we must also seek to be the answer to our own prayers. We don't just get to say amen and be done with it. We have to take a look at our lives and see the places where these idolatries are taking over. We have to identify these greatest of temptations and practice resistance in the way of Jesus who models it for us with his discipline, with his intimate knowledge of the scriptures, with his constant prayers, with his willingness to give up comfort and control and safety for the sake of being a part of what God is doing in the world. It's fitting then, don't you think, that this is the prayer we come back to every week. This is the prayer that you and I say every time we gather in this space. We have to keep praying it. It's a risky prayer. Because here's the thing about temptation. We will never, ever be truly free of it. After Jesus himself resists, these three temptations presented him in the wilderness. This is what the scripture tells us. It says, the devil departed from him until the next opportunity. Those are some of the most haunting words in the Bible. His ironclad willpower, his commitment to the will of God, his discipline in the face of temptation was just enough to get him through this one moment. Even as he was victorious in the face of these temptations, there is this reminder that there will always be more to come. As it happens, the next opportunity comes to Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane on the night in which he gave himself up for us, when the temptation was to walk away from it all. The Gospel of Luke tells us that after the Lord's Supper, Jesus left and made his way to the Mount of Olives, as was his custom, and the disciples followed him. When he arrived, he said to them, Pray that you won't give in to temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, knelt down, and prayed. He said, Father, if it's your will, take this cup of suffering away from me. However, not my will that your will must be done. Then a heavenly angel appeared to him and strengthened him. He was in anguish and prayed even more earnestly. You see, the entire narrative of Christianity, really our whole story, is hinged on temptation. In the beginning... There was temptation in a garden, and sin had its beginning, and the world was never the same. Many years later, there was another temptation in another garden, and sin met its end, and the world was never the same. Beautiful part about this cosmic story of temptation is that at the end of all things, many years from now, the promise is that we, all of us, will have the chance to live a full life, a life restored to perfection in a garden. But this garden will be different. In this garden, sin will never even have had the chance to slither in. Instead, we will be free, free from the temptations that contort us away from God and away from one another, free from the burden of sin, free to live and love and feast at the infinite table together alongside the one who leads us away from temptation and delivers us from evil. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.